But as, as, I, as I thought about the way that I felt as a, as a teenager seeing that movie, understanding the aha moment at the end of that movie where I finally realized what the whole movie was about, it, it makes me kind of think here to Luke 24, where Jesus, the, the, the resurrected Christ, he's talking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And, and if you remember last week, they're despondent, they're, they're, they're depressed because they thought that their rabbi that they had followed who was due, had just been crucified, they thought that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. And they thought that maybe because, because he had been crucified, that he couldn't be the one to redeem Israel. But ultimately, as, as he, he's, he's veiling himself, as he's discussing you know, the things of the Old Testament with them, but as, as he brings to light the Scriptures... And he explains to them that it was written in the, in the law and the prophets that the, that the Christ had to die. He had to be created to suffer and he had to die. As, as he explains that truth in the law and the prophets, what happens? Their hearts begin to burn. I believe they're at that point like I was in 1999. Like, how did I miss this? That is exactly what the scriptures say. And so last week, if you, if you remember, as, as we talked, explaining the kind of things that Jesus would have, would have talked about in Luke 24, in the law, I, I pointed out that in the law, in the first five books of the Bible, points to our need for a Savior. It points to the fact that the Bible is all about God's promise to fulfill Genesis 3.15. That God would defeat sin and death and Satan once and for all through the wounding of the offspring of the woman. Today, we're going to talk about, not the law, we're going to talk about Christ and the prophets. And I will not cover every book of the prophets. I will cover four brief sections in the book of Isaiah this morning. But for context, hopefully you've made your way to Luke 24. In Luke 24, we read this. Luke 24, 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So we went away to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did, our hearts, uh, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. The question that I sought to answer last week is, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And I sought to see that the answer to that in the first five books of the Bible was indeed yes. Again, today we shall look at the prophets in Isaiah. So please turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 42. We're going to seek to answer that question in four sections of, of Isaiah. My main point this morning is this. God's purpose for the world is that he would be exalted through the death and resurrection of Jesus. God's purpose for the world is that he would be exalted through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And again, I'll remind you as of last week, I'm not giving some sort of topical sermon here. I'm trying to preach the intent of what Christ likely talked about in Luke 24, 26 through 27. 
I'm not just trying to jump around here. I'm not trying to just give some one-off sermon. I'm trying to explain Christ in the prophets. Now, we haven't preached through Isaiah, at least since I've been back. And uh, I don't know how many of us are, are, are familiar with Isaiah, how familiar you, how familiar you are with Isaiah, um, but I know it's, it can be very tricky to enter into any book of the Bible. It can be extremely tricky to enter into a prophet. They're, they're very complex books. They're very tricky books. They're at times difficult to understand, and I, I won't be able to go through the, the whole context of Isaiah this morning. Um, I would encourage you to do that on your own time, but Isaiah was written by the prophet Isaiah in the latter half of the 8th century. An Old Testament scholar, Barry, Barry Webb, he writes this. He says, Isaiah is a book about demolition and reconstruction, judgment and salvation, and the order is significant. Paradoxically, salvation out of judgment, and it is possible because of it. It has also been said many times by many voices that Isaiah is considered the first gospel. Maybe you've heard, heard it said. It's been said many times in, in many ways. Perhaps most clearly because, because of all the prophets, it is Isaiah that most clearly points to what the Christ would do in redeeming his people. And so, through the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, again, I'm painting with, a, with very broad strokes here, so forgive me. But through the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, we mainly see Isaiah highlighting judgment for God's people because of their sin. Yes, there's moments of hope, lots of moments of hope sprinkled in there, but primarily uh, we see Isaiah talking about God's judgment upon Judah and God's judgment upon the nations. That's basically what we see through the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. Yet it is in Isaiah 40 where we begin to see Major hope for God's people. Maybe you remember those first few words of Isaiah 40. What are they? Comfort. Comfort. It's, it's, just, it's a, a giant paradox here. You see judgment, 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 judgment. Then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comfort. Comfort. It is Isaiah 40 where we begin to see hope for God's people. Instead of judgment and woes, Isaiah brings a message of comfort from Yahweh to his people. Rather than slavery, God would one day redeem Israel from their sin. And he would do so, is that a subject this morning? He would do so through his servant. Through his servant. And so today, we will look at a description of that servant. Basically, four descriptions of that servant through four what we call servant songs. There's four sections of Isaiah that, that are called the servant songs, and they are des, uh, describing the servant that was to come and what they should have expected in this one who would redeem Israel. You really will need your Bibles this morning. If you're not normally one who opens your Bible, please open it. We're going to go verse by verse through, these, through, through each of these songs, and I want you to see with your own eyes exactly what the Word of God has written about the one who would redeem Israel. And ultimately, what I want us to see this morning is Jesus is that servant. These texts this morning, they're talking about Jesus and, accomplishing, and, and what he accomplished. Jesus is God's servant who redeemed Israel. So, song, the first song we're going to look at this morning is found in Isaiah 42, 1-9. through 9. And it speaks of God's just servant. If you're taking notes, it's God's just servant. Follow along. In Isaiah 42, 1, we read this. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. Notice this description here, friends. He's a servant. He's not a, a domineering bully. He's not a, a self-absorbed egomaniac. He is not a narcissist. He is a servant, and specifically, he is Yahweh's servant. As you think about this, this idea of, of this servant being one who is chosen by God, and, and one whom, it is one whom Yahweh's soul delights, perhaps you recall the early days, several years ago, where we were studying the Gospel of Luke, and, and, and 
in, in Luke chapter 3, where we see kind of the first picture in Luke of Jesus as an adult, right? Before he begins his earthly ministry, he's baptized in the Jordan River. And there, do you remember what happened? That is, there as Jesus is being baptized, where the Father spoke audibly from heaven and said what? You are my son in whom I am what? In whom I am well pleased. We also might recall another time where we hear the Father speak audibly in Luke. You remember that? In chapter 9, the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter, James, and, and John get a glimpse of Jesus in his glory. Do you remember what, said, what God says there? God identifies Jesus as what? His, his chosen one. As his chosen one. You know, one thing that's easy to miss, because you don't read Luke in the context of, of the Old Testament, Luke is making theological points all throughout the book of Luke. And it's, it's really interesting, as I've been studying Isaiah, just how much Luke, as, as he's speaking of things, that, there's probably a lot of stuff that he could have said about Jesus that he didn't mention. I think Luke's a very theological book connected to the Old Testament. And we see these things that Luke is giving us, identifying the fact that, that Jesus was the one in whom which God was well pleased. That Jesus was the one whom God chose. He didn't just pull these out of thin air. He points back to the Old Testament. And next we, we, we read this in Isaiah 42. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And, and so not, not only do we see that, that the servant would be chosen by God and, and that God would delight in him, he would also be led by the spirit. Again, we can look back at Luke chapter 3 at, at Jesus' baptism, and what do we see? We see the Spirit of God coming down like a dove and descending upon Jesus. It was there for the world to see. The Spirit of God coming upon Jesus. Yet what is most striking about this servant is that he would bring forth justice to the nations. That's what's spoken of here in Isaiah 42. He would bring about true justice, not just in Israel, but throughout the whole world. Literally, God's servant would bring forth justice to the Gentiles. And one of the interesting things about the law and its relationship to Israel was that it was given to Israel as a testimony to the nations about how great God is. As the Israelites were called to obey this perfectly good and just law, the nations, they would see that the law and its goodness proclaim how great God is. That was the intent. This is the picture we get in Deuteronomy chapter 4. The unjust, unrighteous, and ignorant Gentiles would see God's law lived out and recognize their depravity in God's goodness. That was God's intent for the law. Unfortunately, throughout the whole Old Testament, we see that no king, no individual, no prophet, in all of Israel ever led Israel this way. Not once. We, we, we see even the godly King David leading in unrighteousness. We see wise Solomon leading in in unrighteousness. No one led with perfect justice. Never. Not once. Then as we continue in, in Isaiah, we see that he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Notice this, as God's servant comes, he would not come in domineering fashion. He would not come with pomp and circumstance. He would not come with fanfare in a way that drew attention to himself, the way that most political leaders would in that time, and even the way that most political leaders do today. He would not come as a dominant military force. What would characterize this servant is what? Meekness and humility. 
In fact, as you, as you consider this text here in Isaiah, when you consider a, a, a bruised reed or, or this faintly burning wick, such objects, when, when looked upon by, by man, they would be deemed useless. You, you, you would see a, a bruised reed and you would think, the right thing for me to do is to not give the reed a chance, but to break it. To see a faintly burning wick, you'd think, okay, this, this candle's almost burned. I'm, I'm just going to blow it out and, and, and not give it a chance. I believe this refers to the fact that the Lord's servant would, would not be one who would oppress the least of these. That he would not discard the things that are, that are discarded by the world. He would give the lowly and the powerless the dignity and justice that they deserve. He would not show preferential treatment to those that provided him with potential military or, or social benefit. And is that not what we see with Jesus? He's primarily ministering to those who are discarded by the world, who are forgotten by the world. Much of which, who the Pharisees were constantly rejecting. And so, the way that Jesus led, this is not the way that most leaders then or today would choose to lead. In fact, in all likelihood, one can't make it far in this world if you're not kissing babies or sucking up to the, the, the powerful or the elite or, or the rich. You don't rise to positions of power in this nation or any other nation by actually and truly and authentically working for the good of the powerless, the helpless, and the poor. You don't get far in life by that, by doing that. Yet, God's servant wouldn't be faint or discouraged. He would go on establishing justice throughout the whole earth. This is his strategy. It will not be thwarted. He will succeed. You know, isn't it amazing that no other man than Jesus Christ fits this description? None. Isn't it also amazing, as we are Christ's ambassadors, how little this description fits us? Isn't it? So Jesus was constantly acting in a way that was perfectly righteous and perfectly just. His heart was inclined towards true justice. That was the heart of God. How often do we show a, a facade of being just or righteous on the outside, but secretly have hidden motives on the inside? How often do we love ministry or relationships that make much of us while we neglect relationships that don't directly benefit us from a social standpoint? Church, consider this morning, as you look at the heart of God and the heart of God's servant, consider a person in your life or in this church or a family in this church that you know they need to be discipled. They need encouragement. They need the word. They need a loving individual to come and put their arms around them. Yet, you continually watch them or their family experience neglect. Friends, this is unjust. This is unjust. This is sinful. Will we be like Jesus and justly pursue such people. Next we read in Isaiah, thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give 
My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Finally, in this, in this first servant song, we get a glimpse of, of what true justice looks like. It isn't just some arbitrary set of rules that, that are determined by cultural norms or the passions of the day. It isn't based on economic theory or the philosophy of man. Instead, it is based on the righteousness of God, specifically, church. It is the justice according to the law of God. And as a light to the nations, God's God's servant, he, he wouldn't be showing them how great democracy is. That's not why he came. As God's servant, he, he did not come to, to just proclaim the excellencies of, of capitalism. God wouldn't be even showing the world how great Israel was. Instead, God's servant would shine forth how great God is. That is what God's servant would do. And God's servant would shed light on how one could be free. Not just free from Rome, not not primarily even free from the other nations, although that would happen. That would happen. But instead... God's servant would shed light on how one could be free from the prison of their own sin, how they could step out of darkness and into the light. That is what God's servant would do. And is this not what Jesus did on the sermon in the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew chapter 5? He showed a very self-righteous people what true justice looked like. He took a religious system that bastardized the law of God and revealed to them true holiness. So what he says in Matthew 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, people think that Jesus came to make the standard of God higher. That he tried to misinterpret the law. But here's here's what... Jesus actually did. Jesus came to reveal to them the true intent of the law. That is what he did. Which was, of course, a higher standard than the religious leaders had of that day. It wasn't outward-looking obedience that God was calling for, but people who worshipped, loved, and feared God with all that they are. Not a people who just wanted to look outwardly righteous, but a people who actually desired to be righteous. He said, this is, this is what justice looks like. Leading according to the law of God, which shows us the holiness in the heart of God. That is what true justice looks like. Again, church, it must be said that our God, our God is a God of justice. He is. God delights Injustice. He hates injustice. And there are many ways in which injustice plays itself out on our society. Many, many ways. We live in a lawless, rebellious, and vile society. Our hearts are prone towards sinful self-promotion. As Christians, as God's ambassadors here on the earth, we are indeed God's representatives in this sinful society. We are to show the world the heart of God. If we are to show the world the heart of God, we must know that justice is very important to the heart of God. We must be people that speak out against true injustice, not for political gain or power, but for righteousness' sake. You might not know this, but today is... National Sanctity of Human Life Day, January 22nd. As I consider today, I'm reminded of the injustice done to over one million babies in their mother's womb in our country every year. One million. One million per year. The place that should be the safest place in the world for the most Helpless members of our society is one of the most dangerous places on earth. However, the biggest issue isn't the offense done to these precious babies. 
The larger issue is that these babies are made in the image and likeness of God. Abortion is an affront to God. God hates it. May we be a people who passionately fight for biblical justice in our homes, in our church, in our city, throughout the world, to the glory of God. Because injustice is an affront to the heart of God. We know this, that God's servant to come would be one who was a just servant. Song number two, Isaiah 49, one through seven. God's servant wouldn't just be just, but we see in, in Isaiah 49, one through seven, we see God's prophetic servant, God's prophetic servant. In Isaiah 49.1, we, we read this. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. The Lord then describes this servant as one who the people of God would not listen to. Or, I'm sorry. The Lord describes the servant as one who the people of God should listen to. It's one who sh- the people should, should listen to. Listen to me, O coastlands. However, it isn't just the people of Israel who should listen, but people all over the world. Why? Why? Because Yahweh has created this servant in his mother's womb to be his mouthpiece to the whole world world. It was God's intent. And so this this servant is described as having a mouth like a sharp sword. He is also described as as a polished arrow. And it is through this servant who is a polished arrow and who has a mouth like a sword, he is the one through which Yahweh would be glorified throughout the whole earth. You know, friends, consider how Egypt sought to bring glory to Pharaoh. The Babylonians sought to bring glory to Nebuchadnezzar. The Persians sought to glorify Cyrus. Or the Romans sought to glorify Caesar. Did they not grow their empires through bloodshed, injustice, and oppression? Did they not gather weapons in order to force other societies into submission through the threat of violence and through loss of life, through loss of culture? Yet, Yahweh would bring glory to himself through a more powerful weapon than anything that any other ancient king could throw his way, the mouth of his servant. For the mouth of the servant speaks the word of God. We might recall last week that Deuteronomy 18 spoke of a prophet to come that was greater than Moses. It would be this one that the people would listen to. Again, at the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter and James and John stood there, and and as they do, God declares to them and before Jesus that Jesus was indeed the one they should listen to. While Jesus was more than a prophet, he was the one true prophet of God to come to reveal God in the flesh to mankind. And in his ministry here on earth, we see Jesus use his mouth to, to save sinners to preach the word with power and authority, to raise the dead, to heal the lame, to give sight to the blind, to cast out demons, to cure diseases, to calm the storms, to rebuke the religious leaders, to convict the people of their sins and proclaim the good news of the gospel. This is how God's servant would use his mouth as a sword, proclaiming the word of God. And we continue in Isaiah 49.4, But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. In verse 4, we see the servant speaking. And and as he speaks, he seems to question all of the work that he did. He speaks of of laboring in vain. It is interesting when when you look at the end of Jesus' life. It certainly looked that way, didn't it? 
Jesus hung on the cross alone with the people of God, by and large, yelling, crucify him. Jesus clearly, throughout his life, revealed himself as the long-awaited Messiah in every way. He revealed himself as God in the flesh. But still, God's covenant people rebelled and rejected him. Yet, in spite of that, the servant knows that his only true joy and his true reward is found in the glory of God alone. This is evident even as Jesus was in the garden, as Jesus is praying before his crucifixion. It wasn't about his will being done. Jesus wasn't exactly looking forward to the cross as a, from a man's standpoint. But he says, not my will, Father, but your will be done. Why? Because it was the will of his Father that brought joy to Christ. Friends, we must embrace the fact that there is no such thing as laboring in vain for the Lord. There's no such thing. Anytime that God's word is proclaimed, it accomplishes God's purpose. The word of God does not return void. At times, God may choose to bring revival. We, we, see, we certainly see this, for instance, in the, in the book of Acts. Yet, when we look at the ministry of Jesus from a human perspective, the ministry of Jesus, it might, it might be judged as a failure from a human perspective. However, God was accomplishing his purposes. We must understand that God is the one who brings revival. God is the one who opens eyes and hearts to trust him. When we simply minister in faith for the glory of God alone, and that is our motive, there is no such thing as failure. There's not. When our treasure and reward is God alone, we can always minister with joy. Amen. Then we read in Isaiah in verse 5, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. And so even, as, even though the ministry of the servant might look like laboring in vain for a short while, Yahweh promises that he would use the servant to redeem Israel and bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Yahweh even indicates that this Holy One would be despised by the nation that he will one day redeem. Yet in spite of the hatred of the servant, Yahweh promises that kings and rulers would one day bow before him. Friends, was Christ, was Christ not the one who was despised and rejected by the people he came to save? Was Christ not the one chosen to die on the cross by the people of Israel rather than the criminal Rabbis? Was Christ not the one who was mocked as the king of the Jews on the cross? Yet, it was Christ who also promised that he would build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. It was Christ who the Apostle Paul spoke of when he said, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. As we consider our time in redemptive history and consider that Christ will bring salvation to the ends of the earth by building his church now, we must remember that doing so will involve much suffering by God's people. If we are to be like Jesus, we too will be a people that suffer. We will experience ups and downs. We will experience the joys of leading people to Christ, 
but we will also experience the hatred of Christ's enemies. Christ was despised. We will be too. Christ experienced disappointments. We will too. Will we be a people who don't only trust, but also delight in God's plan for our lives and for our church as we watch Christ work to build His church on His timetable? Let us take the word to our culture, despite the resistance, and joyfully wait for the Lord to move. In the third song, Isaiah 50, verses 1 through 11, we see God's righteous servant. God's righteous servant. In Isaiah 50, verse 1, we read this, Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce? With which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea, I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. You know, as you, as you continue to read the, the, the book of I, Isaiah, and you, and you read it in its whole context, one might think that because of Israel's sin, that God had abandoned Israel. One might come to that conclusion. Yet in spite of, of Israel's great sin against God, God's grace was greater. God did not send Israel a certificate of divorce. God did not sell Israel into slavery. As surely as God could make the rivers a desert, He had the power and intention to fulfill His promises to Israel. Then we read in Isaiah 50 verse 4, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who were taught, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakes. He awakes my ear to hear as those were taught. Here we see this beautiful verse that God gives his servant the ability to sustain those who are weary. And this is, this is a result of a unique fellowship that Yahweh's servant has with Yahweh. In Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, we, we see this. Jesus says this. Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. What does that look like? Unique fellowship. Unique understanding. Unique eyes to see. Unique ears to hear. And what's the result in Matthew eleven twenty eight? 28? How does the Son use such perspective? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is our Lord God. This is our Lord, the one who is able to sustain with the word him who is weary. Friend, are you weary this morning? Is life heavier than you can hold on your own? Is life not turning out the way that you exactly envisioned it? Look to the Christ who offers you peace and hope this morning. That is what he is here to do, friends. As we continue reading in Isaiah 50, verse 5, we see this. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. 
I hid not my face from disgraced and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear it like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Here we see that the Lord God gave his servant an assignment. And the servant was obedient to whatever Yahweh called him to. Yet we also see the servant in the midst of his obedience to that assignment that he was struck. His beard was pulled. He experienced disgrace and he was spit on. Needless to say, as the Israelites would would read this, they would have seen that the Lord's servant was treated like somebody who was a vile sinner. They would have seen that the Lord's servant was one who appeared to be cursed. This, in their minds, did not... These such things didn't happen to righteous people. This wasn't the description of a, of a righteous looking man. Yet, in the midst of false accusations and persecution, Yahweh sustains his servant so that he walks in perfect obedience in the midst of suffering and persecution. In fact, it says that no one can bring a charge against him. He is not characterized by guilt, but stands before God and man as innocent. Again, friends, is this not what we see with Christ in his crucifixion? Is it not? We see Jesus falsely accused as a false prophet in Israel and an insurrectionist against Rome. Yet, we find both Pilate and Herod in Luke 23 declaring what? That they find no guilt in Jesus. Not only that, but it is the, this, this servant, Jesus, spoken of in Revelation 5, who sits on the throne of God and is declared by all the host of heaven, worthy of all praise and honor and glory forever and ever because of what happened on the cross. He is vindicated. We see that the servant of God, the lamb who was slain, Jesus Christ vindicated before God and man. Then in verse 10, we read this. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all of you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have for my hand. You shall, die, you shall lie down in torment. Friends, we must understand this. That nothing will quench the glory of God. God will receive His glory. He will. And so the proper response to this truth this morning, friends, is to fear God. To fear God. Fall on your knees before Him. Give Him the glory that is due Him. Turn from sin and give your whole life to Him. And if we refuse, if we go our own way, We do not trust in Christ if we live according to our own wisdom. A wisdom that always leads to self-exaltation and self-glory. We will perish. We go our own way. We do not trust Christ. We will perish. That is you this morning. Friend, I beg of you and I plead with you. Trust in Christ. He stands ready to give you grace this morning. Christians. Christians, in the midst of the struggles in this life, as Jesus' ambassadors, are you content to give in to sin and blame it all on your struggles, all on your trials, all on your hard time in life? Or will you look to Christ who was faithful in the midst of trials and false accusations? In the midst of the trials of life and the suffering of life, Christ walked in righteousness. He walked in perfect obedience despite the trials. And that same spirit, Christian, hear me, lives in you. 
No matter what you're going through, no matter how hard the season, you do not need to give in to your sin. Spirit of God lives within you to walk in obedience this morning. And so, as we consider these first three songs, what might an Israelite conclude as they read these first three servant songs? What might they conclude? Well, they would understand that one would come who would rule justly. They would see that this chosen one would be a prophet who would speak the word of God. They would also see someone who righteously obeyed Yahweh and would reign in victory despite opposition. Now let's be honest. Church, if, if we only had these three servant songs, we might understand how Christ's disciples thought his death proved that Jesus wasn't the one to redeem Israel. They saw how Christ was righteous and just. They saw that he was clearly a prophet of God. They even saw that he faced persecution and was obedient to the Father nonetheless. However, how could Jesus reign in victory if he was dead? Was that not a decisive blow? Well, if they would have read the final servant song found in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, they would have understood that the servant of God would and must die. So please, in our final servant song with our time remaining, turn to Isaiah 52, 13 as we discuss God's suffering servant. In Isaiah 52, 13, we read, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond, beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, them they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Uh, again, it's, it's reiterated here that, that the servant of Yahweh would be exalted, first and foremost. He shall stand above every king, and he shall stand above every ruler. Again, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. Yet, we see this what would appear in our minds to be a, a contradiction here, because he's also marred to the point where he doesn't even look like a human anymore. His body is disfigured. Then we continue to read in Isaiah, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This, this servant was a man just like us. He wasn't known for his good looks like King David. And as been noted in, in the other servant songs, he didn't come in any regal manner. He did not come in majesty. There was nothing inherently appealing about his personality there was nothing appealing about his appearance. In other words, he did not naturally draw people to himself from the way that he looked or the way that he acted. He was very, very, very ordinary. We continue reading in Isaiah. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. This servant who was to be exalted above all, the one whom kings would bow before, he is not, his life is not characterized as being loved by man. Rather, he was hated by most. He, he, was, he was characterized as being not a, a man of wealth, man of opportunity but a man of sorrows, a man of many sorrows. His life was not ultimately one that men would look at and say, I want that. He was a man acquainted with grief. So as we continue to read in Isaiah, surely 
He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It is here where we start to see what the servant is finally accomplishing. God's servant was bearing our griefs and our sorrows. Why, 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 did, he, why did he appear acquainted with grief and a man of, of sorrows? and despair? He was bearing our sin. He was bearing our grief. Yet, in the midst of that, the Israelites saw that he was the one who was actually being afflicted by God because of his sin. They saw him as the one on the cross, and they thought he was the one afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. His blood was spilled for us. Does this not hearken back to Leviticus, the need for blood to forgive sin? He was crushed for our iniquities, and with his wounds we are healed. Does this not hearken back to Genesis 3.15? Crushing and wounding to defeat the serpent once and for all. Crushing for our iniquities with his wounds where he healed. The curse of sin, friends, is broken because of his chastisement brought us peace. Because of what happened there what this, in this servant's work, we can now have peace with God. Friends, each one of us stands guilty before God. But here with God's servant, God was laying the sin of the whole world upon his shoulders. God laid the sin of the world on the shoulders of our Savior, Jesus. The cross had to look vile, wrathful, and dreadful because God's wrath is dreadful and fearful. The wrath of a holy God was paid in full on that cross. And listen, nothing is left to be paid because of what his servant did. Then we read, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. You see, in the midst of suffering, the servant remained perfectly obedient. And then we read, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. You see, if it wasn't clear enough yet, the servant would die and be buried in a rich man's grave what do we see happen to Jesus in Luke 23 after his death? We see that he was buried in Joseph's tomb. Then Isaiah writes, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see the offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall, be, uh, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You see, the, the reader must not think that the servant's death was the result of man's domination over the servant. Or Satan's power over the servant. No, like Octavius Winslow famously said, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money. Not the Jews for envy. Not Pilate for fear. But the Father for love. It was the will of God to crush him. Yes, God put that servant to death. He put him to death for a purpose. To make an offering for guilt. For man's guilt. Christian, listen specifically. For your guilt. The servant's death made atonement once and for all 
for man's sins. Yet, death wasn't the end of the story for the servant. Yahweh would see his offspring. His offspring, his days would be prolonged and he shall prosper. In other words, the murdered servant would live. He would live. The result of this servant's death would result in many guilty men being accounted as righteousness before God. Then finally, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. If this prophecy in Isaiah isn't clear enough already, we even see here that this servant would be numbered with the transgressors. We see this with Jesus, where he is killed with actual guilty criminals, one of which he does what? Saves them there on the spot. We, we, in conclusion, friends, this morning, we, we could point to many other passages in the prophets, even in Isaiah. Again, I know I painted, painted with really broad strokes. There's a lot that could be said that I did not say so much. We could point to many other passages in the prophets that highlight the necessity of Christ's death. But hopefully these last two weeks have answered the question Jesus asked his disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer with these things and enter into glory? They would have read the book and understood it. They would have seen what Christ had to do. It was written that this would happen. Christ was the long-awaited Messiah. He fulfilled it all. Every description he fulfills. The law provides a foundation as to why an atoning sacrifice is needed to make things right between man and God. And today in Isaiah, we saw explicitly how God would accomplish this in sending his just, prophetic, righteous, and suffering servant to die for our sins. As we've seen in the Gospel of Luke over these past few years, Jesus indeed fulfills each one of these descriptions that we've read about in the law and the prophets. And so church, how do we live in light of this? How do we live in light of this? Well, like the disciples on the Emmaus Road, the most natural response to such good news is overwhelming joy. Overwhelming joy. Christ did what we could not do. Things have been made right between God and man because of Jesus' atoning sacrifice. Our biggest need has been met in Jesus Christ. I don't know what you're dealing with today. I really don't. But I know people who are dealing with extremely difficult circumstances in life and and, and just what they feel like are large voids in their heart of what life is giving them right now. Understand this. I want you, Christian, to truly see that in Christ, your biggest need has really been met. You are lacking nothing. And this was God's plan as revealed over thousands of years through the Old Testament, Christ came and accomplished what God said he would accomplish. And friends, Christ will come again. He will. He really will come again. And he really will bring his kingdom in its fullness. This is not as good as it gets. We await a day where Christ comes in his glory. And he establishes his kingdom in his fullness here on earth. And there's no sin. There's no rebellion. No one will stand. No one will stand who is not in Christ. And we will be with God. Even though we don't deserve to be, we will be with God. We will stand. We will stand righteous. My heart and my mind cannot fathom it. 
And it will not be because I stood up here and preached. It will not be because I did family worship with my kids. It will not be because I gave money. It will not be because I have a Chick-fil-A and I don't work on Sundays. It will be because of Christ alone and His work. All glory to God. And so friends, friends, how can we, like the disciples on the Emmaus Road, how can we not be ones who would go leave this place and tell the whole world that Jesus died for our sins and he lives and he's coming again and that he offers grace to all those who would trust in him. That is what we do. That is the proper response. May that be characteristic of us community Bible church. Amen. Amen.